Chapter 12 On the Atonement How that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15.3 For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 But God commendeth his love toward us, in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. Isaiah 42.21 whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Romans 3, 25 and 26. In this last passage, the Apostle Paul states with unusual fullness the theological design, and I might even say the philosophical design, of Christ's mission to our world, to set forth before created beings God's righteousness in forgiving sins. It is here said that Christ is set forth as a propitiation so that God may be just in forgiving sin assuming that God could not have been just to the universe unless Christ had been first set forth as a sacrifice. When we seriously consider the irresistible convictions of our own minds in regard to our relationship with God and His government, we cannot help but see that we are sinners and are lost beyond hope when based upon law and justice. The fact that we are grievous sinners against God is an ultimate fact of human knowledge, testified to by our irresistible convictions, and is no more to be denied than the fact that there is such a thing as wrong. Now, if God is holy and good, it must be that He disapproves of wrongdoing and will punish it. The penalty of His law is pronounced against it. Under this penalty, we stand condemned and have no relief except through some adequate atonement that is satisfactory to God because it is safe to the interests of His kingdom. We may advance this far safely and on solid ground by the simple light of nature. If there were no Bible, we might know this much with absolute certainty even atheists are compelled to go this far. Here, then, we are under absolute and most righteous condemnation. Is there any way of escape? If so, it must be revealed to us in the Bible, for it cannot come from any other source. The Bible does profess to reveal a method of escape. This is the great burden of its message. 
It opens with a very brief allusion to the circumstances under which sin came into the world. Without being very detailed as to the manner in which sin entered, it is exceedingly full, clear, and precise in showing the fact of sin in the human race. It is as plain as can be that God regards the human race as being in sin and rebellion. It is worthy of notice that this fact and the connected fact of possible forgiveness are affirmed on the same authority and with the same sort of simplicity and clearness. These facts stand or fall together. God clearly intended to impress on all minds these two great truths. First, that man is ruined by his own sin. And second, that he may be saved through Jesus Christ. To deny the former is to deny both our own irresistible convictions and God's most explicit revealed testimony. To deny the latter is to shut the door of our own free act and accord against all hope of our own salvation. The philosophical explanation of the reasons and governmental meaning of the atonement must not be confused with the fact of an atonement. People may be saved by the fact if they simply believe it, while they may know nothing about the philosophical explanation. The apostles did not make much account of the explanation, but they asserted the fact most earnestly, gave miracles as testimony to prove their authority from God, and so urged people to believe the fact and be saved. The fact, then, may be savingly believed while the explanation is unknown. This has been the case, no doubt, with many thousands of people. It is very useful, though, to understand the reasons and governmental basis of the atonement. It often serves to remove skepticism. It is very common for lawyers to reject the fact until they come to see the reasons and governmental basis of the atonement. Once this is seen, they usually admit the fact. There is a large class of people who need to see the governmental aspect or they will reject the fact. The reason why the fact is so often doubted is that the explanations given have been unsatisfactory. They have misrepresented God. It is no wonder that people would reject them, and along with them, the fact of any atonement at all. The atonement is a governmental expedient to sustain law without the execution of its penalty on the sinner. Of course, it is always a difficult thing in any government to sustain the authority of law and the respect due to it without the execution of penalty, yet God has accomplished it most perfectly. A distinction must be made here between public and retributive justice. The latter punishes the individual sinner according to the nature of his offense. The former, public justice, looks only toward the general good and must do that which will secure the authority and influence of law, as well as the carrying out of the penalty. It may accept a substitute, though, if it is equally effective to the support of law and the assurance of obedience.
Public justice, then, may be satisfied in one of two ways, either by the full execution of the penalty or by some substitute that will serve the purposes of government at least equally well. What is necessary for the purposes of public justice? 1. Not the literal execution of the penalty, for if so, it must necessarily fall on the sinner and on no one else. Besides, it could be no gain to the universe for Christ to suffer the full and exact penalty due to every lost sinner who would be saved by him. Since the amount of suffering is the same in the one case as in the other, where is the gain? Further, if the administration of justice is to be disciplinary and corrective, then it cannot fall on Christ, but must fall on the sinner himself. If not disciplinary and corrective, it certainly may be, as compared with that due the sinner, far different in kind and less in degree. It has sometimes been said that Christ suffered everything in the same degree and the same in kind as all the saved together would have suffered. But human reason revolts at this assumption, and certainly the Scriptures do not affirm it. 2. Some people say that God needs to be appeased and to have His feelings pacified. This is an absolute mistake. It completely misrepresents God and misunderstands the atonement. 3. It is not part of public justice for an innocent being to suffer penalty or punishment, in the proper sense of these terms. Punishment implies crime, of which Christ had none. Christ, then, was not punished. Let it be clearly understood that the divine law originates in God's kindness, and it only has compassionate ends in view. It was revealed only and solely to promote the greatest possible good by means of obedience. Such a law can allow for forgiveness, provided an expression can be given that will equally secure obedience and make an equal revelation of the lawgiver's firmness, integrity, and love. Since the law is perfect and is most essential to the good of his creatures, God must not set aside its penalty without some equivalent influence that will lead to obedience. The penalty was designed as a testimony to God's regard for the dictates of His law and to His purpose to sustain it. An atonement, therefore, that would answer as a substitute for the administering of this penalty must be able to show God's regard for both the precept and the penalty of His law. It must be adapted to enforce obedience. Its moral power must be, in this respect, equal to that of the administration of the penalty on the sinner. Consequently, we find that in this atonement, God has expressed His high regard for His law and for obedience to it. The method of administering the penalty of the law was to make a strong impression of the majesty, 
excellence, and the utility of the law. Anything may answer as a substitute that will as thoroughly demonstrate the evil and wickedness of sin, God's hatred of it, and his determination to carry out his law in all its demands. The proposed substitute may especially avail if it will also make a significant demonstration of God's love to sinners. The atonement by the death of Christ has most emphatically done this. Every act of rebellion denounces the law. Therefore, before God can pardon rebellion, he must make such a demonstration of his attitude toward sin that will excite the heart of the created universe and make every ear tingle. For the purpose of the highest obedience, it was especially necessary to make such a demonstration that will appropriately secure the confidence and love of subjects toward their lawgiver that will show that he is no tyrant and that he seeks only the highest obedience and resultant happiness of his creatures. Once this is done, God will be satisfied. What can be done to teach these lessons and to impress them on the universe with great and everlasting emphasis? God's testimony must be so given as to be well understood. Obviously, the testimony to be given must come from God, for it is His view of law, penalty, and substitution that needs to be revealed. Everyone must see that if he were to enact law on the sinner, this would show at once his view of the value of the law. But plainly, his view of the same thing must be shown with equal force by any proposed substitute before he could accept it as such. In this transaction, the decree of the law must be accepted and honored by both God and by Jesus as mediator. The latter, as the representative of the human race, must honor the law by obeying it and by publicly endorsing it. Otherwise, the necessary honor cannot be shown to the divine law in the proposed atonement. This has been done. To make adequate provision for the application of mercy to the human race, it is plainly essential that in the person of their mediator, both the divine and the human should be united. God and man are both to be represented in the atonement. The divine word represented the Godhead, and the man Jesus represented the race to be redeemed. What the Bible thus asserts is verified in the history of Jesus, for he said and did things that could not have been said and done unless he had been man, and equally could not have been unless he were also God. On the one hand, he was too weak to carry his cross through exhaustion of the human. On the other hand, he was mighty to calm the storm and to raise the dead through the abundance of divine power. We see then that God and man are both represented in Jesus Christ. 
The thing to be done, therefore, required that Jesus Christ would honor the law and fully obey it. He did just that. Standing for the sinner, he must, in an important sense, bear the curse of the law. Not the literal penalty, but a vast amount of suffering that is sufficient in view of his relationship to God and the universe to make the necessary demonstration of God's displeasure against sin, yet also of his love for both the sinner and all his moral subjects. On the other hand, Jesus represented the human race, and on the other hand, he represented God. This is a most divine philosophy. The sacrifice made on Calvary is to be understood as God's offering to public justice. God himself gave up his son to death, and this son poured forth his life's blood in atonement for sin, thus throwing open the folding gates of mercy to a sinning lost race. This must be regarded as demonstrating his love to sinners. This is God's ransom provided for them. Look at the state of the case. The supreme lawgiver, and indeed the government of the universe, had been scorned by rebellion. Of course, there can be no pardon until this dishonor done to God and his law is thoroughly washed away. This is done by God's free will offering of his own Son for these great sins. Sinners, what do you think of all this being done for you? What do you think of that appeal that Paul writes and that God makes through him? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Romans 12.1 Think of those mercies. Think how Christ poured out his life for you. Suppose he were to appear to you today, and holding up his hands dripping with blood would say, I implore you by the mercies shown to you by God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. Would you not feel the force of his appeal that this is a reasonable service? Would not this love of Christ constrain you? 2 Corinthians 5.14 What do you think of it? Did he die for all so that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him that loved them and gave himself for them? 2 Corinthians 5.15, Ephesians 5.25. What do you say? Just as the uplifted axe would otherwise have fallen on your neck, he caught the blow on his own. You could have had no life if he had not died to save it. What then will you do? Will you have this offered mercy, or will you reject it? Will you yield to him the life he has spared in such mercy, or will you refuse to yield it?
Remarks 1. The governmental significance of this design is perfectly apparent. The whole transaction tends powerfully to sustain God's law and to reveal His love and even mercy to sinners. It shows that He is personally ready to forgive and needs only to have such an arrangement made so that he can do it safely in regard to his government. What could show his readiness to forgive so remarkably as this? See how carefully he guards against the abuse of pardon. He is always ready to pardon, yet ever watchful over the great interests of obedience and happiness, so that they are not jeopardized by its freeness and fullness. 2. Why would it ever be thought inconceivable that God would devise such a plan of atonement? Is there anything in it that is unlike God or that is inconsistent with His revealed character? I doubt whether any moral agent can understand this system and still think it is unbelievable. Those who reject it as unbelievable must have failed to understand it. 3. The question might be asked, Why did Christ die at all, if not for us? He had never sinned. He did not die on His own account as a sinner. He did not die as the infants of our race do, with a moral nature yet undeveloped, yet who belong to a sinful race. The only account to be given of his death is that he did not die for himself, but for us. It could also be asked why he died in the way he did. See him dying between two thieves, crushed down beneath a mountainous weight of sorrow. Why was this? Other martyrs have died shouting. He died in anguish and grief, cast down and afflicted, and hidden from his father's face. All nature seemed to sympathize with his agony. The sun was clothed in darkness. The rocks were split. The earth quaked. All nature was shaken. Even a heathen philosopher exclaimed, Surely the universe is coming to an end, or the maker of the universe is dying. Listen to that piercing cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46 On the belief that he was dying as a Savior for sinners, it is all plain. He died for the kingdom of God, and he had to suffer these things to make a just expression of God's abhorrence of sin. While he stood in the place of guilty sinners, God had to frown on him and hide his face from him. This reveals both the spirit of God's government and his own infinite wisdom. 4. Some have criticized the atonement as likely to encourage sin, but such people neglect the very important distinction between the proper use of a thing and its abuse. 
no doubt the best things in the universe may be abused, and by abuse can be corrupted to evil, and all the more by how much the better they are in their correct use. It would seem that no one can rationally doubt of the natural tendency of the atonement to good. The tendency of displaying such love, meekness, and self-sacrifice for us is to make the sinner trust and love, and to make him bow before the cross with a broken and contrite heart. Many people do abuse it, though, and the best things abused become the worst. The abuse of the atonement is the very reason why God sends sinners to hell. He says, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye? Shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite to the Spirit of grace? Hebrews 10, 28 and 29. Therefore, if any sinner will abuse the atoning blood and trample down the holy law and the very idea of returning to God in repentance and love, God will say of him, Of how much sorer punishment shall he be thought worthy than he who despised Moses' law and fell beneath its vengeance? 5. It is a matter of fact that this manifestation of God in Christ does break the heart of sinners. It has subdued many hearts and will subdue thousands more. If they believe it and hold it as a reality, must it not subdue their heart to love and grief? Do you not think so? Certainly, if you saw it as it is and felt the force of it in your heart, you would break down in tears and cry out, Did Jesus love me so much, and will I love sin any longer? Your heart would melt just as thousands of hearts have been broken and melted in every age when they have seen the love of Jesus as revealed on the cross. That beautiful hymn puts the case truthfully. I saw one hanging on a tree, in agony and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me, as near the cross I stood. But it was not the first look that fully broke his heart. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I died that thou mayest live. It was only after the second look that his whole heart broke, tears fell like rain, and he gave his all in the full consecration of his soul to the Savior. This is the genuine result 
of the sinner's understanding of the gospel and giving Jesus Christ credit for his loving kindness in dying for the lost. Faith thus breaks the stony heart. If this demonstration of God's love in Christ does not break your heart, nothing else will. If this death and love of Christ do not cause you to surrender to Him, nothing else can. However, if you do not look at it and will not set your mind upon it, it will only work your destruction. To know this gospel only enough to reject and renounce it can serve no other purpose except to make your sin even greater and your fate even more fearful. 6. Jesus was made a sin offering for us. This was beautifully illustrated under the Mosaic system. The victim was brought out to be slain. The blood was carried in and sprinkled on the mercy seat. This mercy seat was no other than the sacred cover or lid of the ark that contained the tables of the law and other sacred memorials of God's ancient mercies. There they were, in that deep recess within which none might enter on pain of death except the high priest, and he only once a year, on the great day of atonement. On this eventful day, the sacred rites culminated to their highest solemnity. Two goats were brought forward, upon which the high priest laid his hands and publicly confessed his own sins and the sins of all the people. Then one goat was driven far away into the wilderness to signify how God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. The other goat was slain, and its blood was carried by the high priest into the most holy place, where it was sprinkled upon the mercy seat beneath the cherubim. Meanwhile, the vast congregation stood outside, confessing their sins and expecting remission only through the shedding of blood. It was as if the whole world had been standing around the base of Calvary, confessing their sins, while Jesus carried his cross to the summit to hang upon it and to bleed and die for the sins of mankind. How fitting that while Christ is dying, we would be confessing our sins. Some of you may think it is a great thing to go on a foreign mission. But Jesus has led the way. He left heaven on a foreign mission. He came down to this more than heathen world, and no one ever faced such self-denial. Yet he fearlessly marched up without the least hesitation to face the consequences. Never did he back away from disgrace, humiliation, or torture. Can you, then, hesitate from following the footsteps of such a leader? Is anything too much for you to suffer while you follow in the lead of such a captain of your salvation?'